This is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd. And if you like this episode, and or if you've liked our episodes in the past, do me a favor. Go to iTunes, and please write us a nice review. It would really help with my low self-esteem. Okay, let's get right to it. we got another great episode of Improv Nerd for you today. Our guest today is Matt Dwyer. He's a stand-up comedian, writer, and podcaster. His podcast, Conversations with Matt Dwyer, can be heard right here on Feral Audio. He was also one of the youngest people to be hired at Second City for the touring company at the ripe old age of 21. He's written for Funny or Die and Jonah Ray's Hidden America on Netflix. He has a new comedy album just released called Inside Looking Out. I've known Matt since the 90s here in Chicago when we both played on a team called Monster Island at the I.O. We talked to him about finding Second City when he was only 16 and hanging out there. And he takes us back to those days. How getting fired from Second City turned out to be a good thing and why it's so important for improvisers to write. Before we get to the phone interview with Matt, uh, as I was thinking about what I was going to say in this part of the podcast, which is usually, a, you know, what's going on in my life, I'm like, I realized, like, I have nothing to say to you guys since having... Uh, our baby Betsy Jane three weeks ago. All I've I've been in the house, all you know, for three weeks. And my my wife Lauren, she's always complaining. She's like, "Oh my God, I don't get to go outside. I'm always in the air conditioning," because she's basically got the baby glued to her boob, you know, because she's breastfeeding, so she can't leave the house. And I don't really leave the house. And I'm trying to keep the house together, like you know, do the laundry and uh, empty the dishwasher and load the dishwasher and, you know, make sure the kitchen's all clean and occasionally I'll, I'll change a poopy diaper. But for the most part, I mean, I don't, I don't have a life. And everybody told me, oh, don't wait. You're going to get a kid. You're going to get tons of material. Well, ever since the birth, I mean, it's been a long dry spell. So, you know, I mean, I haven't even like, we haven't like watched a movie or, you know, rented a movie or seen something. We don't have Netflix. We don't have a TV, but we do watch off the computer. But I don't even have that. I mean, I guess, I don't even think this is interesting, but pretty much the only thing we've been watching is the baby monitor. We have a, a little baby monitor where we can watch her and be in different rooms. And, and we're going to bed really early, like before 10 o'clock, which I guess is what you do when you become a parent. You become a father. You become boring. And we, we put Betsy down in her crib and we hope and pray to God that she'll sleep for three hours before Lauren has to get up and breastfeed her. Like I said, this is my life. I'm Creatively, I'm in a, in a long, dry spell. And the same people, these same people that said, oh, you know, when you when you have Betsy, when you, when you have a baby, you're going to get all this new material. Well, those are the same people that said, when your wife delivers the baby and you see that baby come out of your wife and and you know you are going to be filled with such joy I wasn't filled with joy I was terrified I was I was in shock I was I was in trauma for God's sakes I you you know I'm starting to feel the joy I'm starting to feel the love towards my daughter but you you know I'm a slow learner I'm 52 and I'm a first-time father this isn't interesting. This is a long, dry spell. So you're just going to have to bear with me. Hopefully it will pass. 
But in the meantime, I've got a great phone interview with Matchwire. Here it is, the Matchwire episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. Matchwire, thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. Jimmy Crane, I'm, I'm honored. Well, I, I, Matt, I'm going to tell you this, and I've told you this before. You are one of the few people that really make me laugh on Facebook, in stand-up, and I just have so much respect for you as an interviewer. Uh, that's incredibly flattering. I've, you know, I, I was thinking about it the other day. I was just, uh, I was like, "Fuck, Jimmy Crane and I go way back." Like I, I was thinking about Monster Island and uh, just. And I've always been like a huge, huge fan. And back in Chicago, I would say I was intimidated by your improv prowess. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like you were like, I mean, you you still are, but like you were like a, one of the the gods. You were the heavyweights. And, uh, you know, uh, that was – and I, I personally never – believed I was a very good improviser. I knew I was capable of being funny and forwarding things, but I was never of the Keckner Dorf, you know, uh, Jimmy Corain ilk. Um, and you started um, in like your comedy improv career seeing sets at Second City. And um, you, you, you went there so often that the staff started to know you. Tell me about the first time that you saw an improv set at Second City. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I went because uh, I was, I was involved with a church youth group and the really, the only reason I sort of got involved is they did sketches at the youth group thing. And I was like, Oh, I wanted to, I, so I weaseled my way into that. And I was obsessed with second city, even though I had never been there. I just knew Belushi went there and I was like, the guy was a God to me. And I convinced the church, the guy who was ahead of the youth group to take us there on a field trip, even though, you know, it probably wasn't the most Christian sort of element, <laughs> Second City. And I remember, like, we went to the ETC, and I, you know, I, I remember the, who was in the entire cast. And just from the second the lights went out through the whole show and to the, through the improv set, I was just, like, I w it was like I had found a religion. I was just in awe, and I wanted to be a part of it so badly. The first person I saw on stage there was Joe Keith. Like, I'll never forget it. <laughs> it was Joe Keefe and Mindy Bell. Um, yeah, and then I just I heard when they did the announcements at the end of the show and they said uh, that they do free improv sets. I was even though I didn't have a car at the t or a driver's license at the time, I was like I would I was would find a way to get there whenever I had the opportunity. And as soon as I got a car, I went to every improv set. I went every Saturday night and. I went so often that Aaron Rhodes, who later, he was a host, he, and later became an actor on the stages, one time invite, he was like, oh, hey, you're that kid that's always here. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, why don't you come in and watch the show? And he let me into the show and he gave me a beer. And I was like, what the hell is this world? Like, who does this? And, you know, I was 16 and drinking a beer in the back of the theater. <laughs> and then uh, he asked me to like, you know, I, I don't know if it was that time or a couple of like a couple weeks later, but then he invited me to like one of their after parties and I started becoming friends with the entire staff and like hanging out with, you know, the actors and 
and it was it was this insanely magical like i i was the kid in high school that everyone kicked the shit out of and i got that at home a little bit too and i i was always this outsider and suddenly as a 16 year old i'm hanging out with people i had been watching on stage and in awe of for you know months and it was just it was surreal and i never once thought like i can keep up with these people i think I, i'm thankful that i would hang out with them it, it it was like being at the algonquin round table because after shows and stuff we'd go to either mitchell's a diner or like you know i forget what in between these late night joints to eat and hang out or bars even because i would get in because they would just be like oh yeah he works at second city <laughs> i was i was going to you know this the the world opened up to me in a way i never thought possible and, and of course i started working on the staff too and lying to my mother that the car broke down so i could spend a few days in the city wearing the same underwear <laughs> what was going on at your house you know you talked about you know the the, the anger your father had and you know what, what was going on in your house at, at, in those years um in those years my father died when i was 12 so he was out of the picture and i was the youngest of five boys uh most of whom were out of the house by this point uh, my one brother patrick was uh, kind of a um he was a troublemaker and he was very angry and he kind of knocked me around a lot. When I you mean, mean knocked you around physically? Oh yeah. Beat the shit out of me. Okay. Um, like he would just like be like, Hey, uh, give me a bite of your sandwich. And if I said no, he'd, he'd haul off and punch me in the face. Um, and he would just come up and just randomly start beating on me. It was not, you know, it wasn't like that brotherly, like, Hey, I'm giving you a hard time. It was legitimate ass kickings. Um, and my mom had been with my father since she was like 13. So when he died, and you know, I think she kind of, she was a bit, you know, uh, trying her best, but I, you know, and then at some point she started rediscovering herself as a new person and dating. And I think my, my brother, Pat, who got busted for like dealing drugs and all this stuff, like all this craziness sort of took her toll. And I think she's didn't check out or wasn't being a, intentionally a bad mom but i think she was just consumed with a new life and so in and in a good way that was for me because uh she didn't keep many tabs on me so i was able to roam freely i would tell her like hey i'm not going to high school today and then <laughs> i'd just drive to the city and hang out with second city people and she was like okay i'm not calling in for you and i was like that's fine and then i'd get suspended for ditching and then I'd hang out in the city more. So it was like, <laughs> it was amazing. I graduated. And, and as I remember, your father committed suicide? No, he accidentally shot himself. Um, uh, it wasn't suicide, but he did. He, uh, he accidentally shot himself with a pistol that he had found in the city um, in, a, in a bank money bag. Um, and I, even as a kid, I was like, I don't think this is a good idea to keep. And he disagreed with me and then later it didn't work out so well. Oh, so, so you, <laughs> you, you had, you, you had seen the gun and had told him about it wasn't a good idea. Oh yeah. We had guns all over the house and I, you know, we handled them all the time. I mean, it's amazing. None of us shot anybody. Um, but yeah, he, and the, it, it misfired. I, 
believe the safety was even on and the guns were, it was a faulty gun that they recalled them on top of it. We found out after the fact. And my mother was like sitting in bed reading when it happened and he was sitting on the edge of the bed and I was in the next room. Uh, so I ran in shortly after and, and, uh, cause I heard my mother yelling. And so I ran in shortly after cause I didn't know what was going on, but I thought they were fighting or something. And I, I don't know what possessed me to run in there because I should have – I mean, I think I was going in to defend my mother. Not that he ever hit my mother. That he never did, um, or, nor was he violent towards her. But, you know, I, just, I don't know. I, I just assumed from the way my mother was pleading with him that something was – he was doing something. And, of course, I, you know, I saw uh, him on the bed. And I immediately ran and called nine one one, which wasn't nine one one at the time. I had to I had to actually dial dial the uh, seven numbers or whatever it was. And how was that uh, that period in your life in terms of kids treating you at school? In terms of of you know uh, having to deal with losing a father this way? Um, it was I I, I already felt awkward in in the world and um so that added i added to it for sure like now i was the kid whose dad shot himself and it was a small suburb and people talked uh people did assume it was suicide uh there was even a, you know brief accusations that it was my mother and uh one kid even said it that people were saying it was me um, so, <laughs> uh, I, I, it, I, I don't know if the, I would have been this way or not, but I definitely began to withdraw and at, at times would, um, except when I was with the second city people, I would be, I became very, would become reclusive and, uh, like I would avoid parties and I would avoid, like sometimes I'd just be out with people and I would just leave cause I didn't um just didn't like being around them <laughs> and how did comedy help you uh start to uh deal with with your family i think I, it became um it was the first time i felt like there was something in the world i could do i don't know why uh, it was something that interested me since I was in elementary school. I rem would perform in the Friday class show, would do sketches and stuff. I did a really offensive character named Johnny Dago, <laughs> who was an Italian guy. But, you know, it was I was already being influenced by, like, uh, you know, National Lampoon and... Saturday Night Live, which did, you know, weirder, edgier sort of stuff in that vein. And that's probably where I got the idea that it was okay to do an Italian character with the name Dago, though my teacher was like, probably should change the name of the character. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I think, I think that, like, with Second City and stuff, I, I think after my father died, I, I, I was desperate to find a community to belong to. That's why I went to the Christian, you know, the youth group and uh, tried other things. 
And I think that Second City and that became a a uh, sort of an, the family I was looking for in a community because they accepted me. I was a goofball, weirdo kid. And, and you know, actors and writers and musicians aren't the most normal people either. So it seemed like a, a good fit. And, you know, it's just so people know, it was uh, around, the, it was 1990, somewhere in there. And Second City still was a family. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the 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 corporate entity that it is now. I mean, Piper's Alley looked nothing like it was still like a cobblestone hippie, you know, vortex, and there were still head shops and stuff on Wells. And uh, Second City served old style and old style light beer, and that was it. And on draft, there was nothing in a bottle, <laughs> and there was nothing fancy. Um, they, you know, they sold T-shirts and sweatshirts, and that's about as far as their uh, merchandise went. Now, you, know, you probably could buy a goddamn car or something. Who knows? And then you um, you started to take classes there and get and you got is is that right? Yeah, I, they had high school classes, and I took them immediately. I I had a you know I had I had a job working in a grocery store, oddly a union job, which would be unheard of these days. Um, so I was at 16 making a decent amount of money so I could afford the classes. And I went, I think I went two, three times a week. They, they had the classes and I would just sit in on any class I could. I would watch other classes of adults. Um, and, uh, yeah. And that's, it's funny because that's like at that time, David Pasquese was doing his level five show. And that was, I, I would go see, I would go see all the student shows. I, I would see, I went to like, I don't know if you remember if you like improv Institute did, uh, that used to be a theater and they would do improv till dawn once a year. And I think it was like a 24 hour. And I went to the whole 24 hours <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just, I was obsessed and it became, it became every element of my life. And then about five years later, you get hired by the Second City Touring Company, and you're the you are the young one of the youngest members at 21. Uh, yeah, I think I possibly I don't I think there might have been a couple of people who might have I like I think maybe Gelman was younger than me or something insane, but I was, and I I, I sometimes I wonder. If I was mentally ready for that job. <laughs> In what way? What, what did you I, have to deal with that you didn't think you were ready for? I think I wish, and this is a hindsight of an older man, you know, there was an element of insecurity, uh, that, which is weird because I felt like when I was younger, I was completely fearless with performing. Younger, I was 21. Like, but, like, I was fearless and had this absurd assuredness about myself and that I was I was uh, John Belushi <laughs> type like I was like I'm gonna be that good I'm gonna be that guy uh hopefully sounds the overdose and I uh but and somewhere you know I think once I started performing with really good people uh you know I I better than me it uh you know it's a it's a it's a you gotta up your game and I think at times I I just was insecure and probably said things that I shouldn't have because I was 
you know, being a dumb fuck 21 year old. How did you deal with that? You know, working with people that you perceived were better than you were at the time. Um, I remember clear as fucking day. The first time I improvised with Adam McKay and it was a rehearsal and, um, it was like, it's probably like how, well, how hair metal bands felt like when Nirvana hit the scene. <laughs> it was like, oh shit, this is a different, this is something different. Um, and I just remembered thinking, um, I got to get better and fast or I'm not going anywhere in this theater. And, uh, you know, and that was the era that, you know, they brought in, uh, Kevin Dorf and, you know, a lot of these IO people. So long form, which I had studied, uh, but not as extensively, I think, as, you know, the, the, you guys did. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, I just, threw myself into that aspect of it and you know sort of like a you know a, a jazz musician when you know certain dudes would come up and they'd be like all right I gotta fucking get on that game and you just do it and I was thankful enough that f friends like Dorf and Keckner and McKay and those guys befriended me and they weren't you know they were cool dudes and I think they helped elevate my level of play Instead of, you know, they didn't, they, they were such great improvisers that they weren't going to play like, oh, we're better than you. They, they sort of educated me through doing it, you know, by improvising with me and it raised my level. So when you said, you know, I got to throw myself into it, does that mean you're, you're taking more classes or you're just adjusting uh, your, your, um, your attitude about stuff? It, I, I mostly adjusted my attitude. I did... Um, I, I did return to the IO, uh, when I took a, uh, there was a, a break in time that I worked at second city. Um, and I took IO classes when I was pretty young too. David Pesquese denies this, but I, I swear to God, cause I got a free scholarship for IO when I was like 18 and I didn't pay for a thing. I didn't do any work. I didn't like work the box office for free. And I, I solely because I remember I asked Pesquese, I was like, hey, man, how do I get into I.O.? And he's like, oh, I'll, and I don't know. The next thing I knew, I was taking free classes. And he says he had nothing to do with it. But I don't know who else would have done it. <laughs> but anyway, I got off on a tangent there. But so when I had a break at Second City around when I was 24, uh, the, I worked at a theater at the Northwest and it closed down. Um, I went back to I.O. and I started doing Herald's. Uh, with, with you and, and many other great people who also, and I think doing Monster Island and Armando, uh, those kind of uh, shows where that was real, a uh, very complicated form of improvising. You know, Second City didn't do those edits and stuff at it in those days. Um, the fast edits and the sweep, you know, it, it was a, and tap outs and all that stuff. Um, so that was, you know, when I started seeing that, it was like, it was like playing big band and then seeing someone play bebop. <laughs> it was, uh, but you know, you just jump in there and you, if I think if you don't, if you're aware of the, of the f format and you see it and then you don't get in your head about it, you can, you can adapt to these things easily. Cause it's just sort of, 
forgive the hippie-ish Zen sort of, but it's just sort of jumping into the flow of it, if you will. And then after that, because uh, Northwest had closed, right, you end up uh, doing uh, the, the ETC, Second City ETC. And, um, you know, we've talked about this before. If you could do it over again, what would you have done differently? Because I, I believe the circumstances, you, you had gotten fired at ETC after a review. I did get fired. Um, I think I wouldn't have let allowed others uh, f others uh, approaches um, affect my approach. Um, there was a lot of fucking around in the ETC back in those days, and there were certain individuals who were um, the catalysts for the not following the scripts and um, I sort of jumped into that a little bit more than I wish I had um, but I was very proud of the work I did back in that theater and uh, you know I know the theater was and and they needed to uh, and they wanted to part of the reason that I I was like oh they wanted diversity and they should that's 100% what they should do um, and because it was a very honky, honky world back then <laughs> on those stages. And uh, and in hindsight, though, um, the end of ETC uh, was one of the best things to happen for me um, because I returned to doing stand-up, which I dabbled in, but I decided that I was like, well, I'll just go full force into that. Um and I started a, a experimental show above the ETC, oddly, that, uh, like, a, and it wasn't solely a stand-up show, but it had a lot, because I would invite improvisers uh, to do it as well. But that became a huge success, uh, bigger than I would have ever expected. I mean, like, you know, Sarah Silverman, like, people would come to town and ask to do it, and it was, like, mind-boggling. And it was, like, sold out for over a year, <laughs> so... And that was that gave me a new life, and I think going into that stuff helped uh, forward my career more than I think Second City would have, or or my life. In in what way? Um, I met a whole new world of uh, creative people, um, and when I moved to Los Angeles, having to having stand up as one of the things I could do in addition to improvising and writing that I'd learned at Second City, it gave me a, a, a place to showcase myself. Uh, you know, it's as a stand up, it's easy. You know, there's a, you can just start doing shows and sure they suck, but you stick at it a lot. Around. It, the town isn't that big. People think it's this immense thing, but it's like the circle of stand up is pretty small and you get in there and people know you. And then before, you know, I was able to garner a manager almost immediately because he saw me do a set. And I knew people from Second City who got me, like, helped get me sets at places like the Improv. So, you know, I if I would have just moved to second uh, L.A. as an actor and a writer, I no one would have probably ever noticed who the hell I was. Not that anybody has, really. <laughs> 
How do you deal with that? You know, because I got to tell you something. And, and Matt, you are one of the the, the the most talented people that I know. You're a great writer. You're you know you're a great stand up. Um, how, how do you deal with, with with? I haven't been I you know I haven't been gotten the respect that I deserve monetarily or critically. Uh you know, it's one of those things that if you overly think. Uh, you'll go insane. Um, there are, from having been around Second City for as long as I have, uh, there has always been a performer uh, this, that is genius or absolutely brilliant, and they never go on and reach a level of stardom. Um, uh, so... I fully am aware, uh, I've always been aware that that is a thing that happens. Um, it is a challenge uh, for one's psyche when you uh, repeatedly see your friends making great livings and, per, you know, uh, doing everything from, you know, selling television shows to winning Oscars. Uh, it doesn't say I, I, I am proud and happy for them, but you're kind of like, it does make you go, what the fuck did I do wrong? <laughs> what? And, and the answer to that is, uh, if nothing, if I followed my heart and, uh, what I, you know, I, I will admit that I have been stubborn at times. Um, I always came from the school of, you know, uh, or I was trained sort of to think that, Good work always finds its place. And in Los Angeles, that's not true. It's not true at all. This town doesn't reward uh, creativity as much as it should. And I think that's one thing I've realized is uh, I feel like if you want to be a creative person, uh, don't move to Los Angeles. <laughs> it's like it's because um, it doesn't. And I've had people praise my scripts. Uh, Adam McKay loved a script I wrote and did everything he could to uh, get it made. And uh, uh, he gave it to, you know, I mean, he gave it to people read this script that would make your jaw drop. I mean, David O. Russell was one and O. Russell loved it. McKay wanted it, asked him if he would direct it. And O. Russell uh, said, this guy, the writer should direct it because it's so personal but anyway those things are um they don't put food in your mouth but that sort of thing is a reward um when uh brilliant people believe in your work it just uh, i think i've also pursued i've never been in pursuit of the mainstream success um i mean i've given it a shot here and there but it's you know, to, to try to write something that is a bit more uh, sellable and commercial. And it is something I'm not always the best at. It's, um, and I'm sure if I had, I mean, I'm sure if I was given a job writing for like two and a half men or something, I could do that and I would do that. But it's not in, it's not the thing I pursue. Uh, and that's, so thus, I think why, you know, I, I, and, and my stand-up has always been a little bit not, uh, and I've, 
it's not what everybody else has been doing. Um, and I, I always took value in the fact that if everyone's doing one thing, fucking find a different way to do it because we don't need all of the same thing. But L.A. doesn't necessarily reward that very often. They will tell you just like, hey, why don't you do what Louis C.K. is doing? Because that's what's selling. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Louis C.K. is doing that. So I don't think I can do that. For people that don't know your stand-up, can you describe uh, what, 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 what you do, your style? I would say, I mean, every stand-up comedian is a bit of a persona when they're on stage. Um, I would say it's, uh, I mean, I, towards the end, I really don't do it anymore. I, I don't, I lost my interest, but I, it, it was a bit of a absurdist, uh, version of myself. And I would tell stories about my family and things that happened to me, but none of it was true. I had a piece where I would start, uh, off, uh, I, uh, saying that I hadn't done stand-up in a while and that I, uh, this was my first time coming back and I was a recovering heroin addict. And I tell the story of how one night Tom Brokaw was in the audience and saw me do stand-up and he liked me and invites me over to his table and we start drinking and things get crazy. And he's like, hey, let's take the party on up to my room. And like the story goes into this big, huge sort of like drug binge and <laughs> we're stealing cars and you know, but it starts off, people don't know whether I'm telling the truth or not. And it just goes into this totally absurd tale of me and Tom Brokaw, you know, shooting people with shotguns. <laughs> and it was just, and I, to me, I was like, I, and it would do very well. But, you know, L.A. looks at that and goes, we can't make that into a TV series. I say, yes, you can. I want to see Tom Brokaw kill somebody. <laughs> what is it? What is it about that 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 style of humor that you really enjoy doing? Um, it's to me, I I always had a. Uh, I feel like well, there's a lot of things to it. I feel like there, in ways of being in that sort of absurdist mode, you can make political and social statements without being. Um, a ranty political guy who no one fucking likes anyway. I mean, there's very few people who are, who can be a political stand-up and be very, and, and are good at it. And I didn't think I could be that guy. Um, but I want, you know, I would want, I wanted to make statements about things. Not that the Brokaw thing is an example of this, but, um, without being preachy and, and fun, I wanted it to be funny and fun. And then maybe later someone would be like, oh, that's kind of interesting. He was talking about uh, homelessness. I used to have a bit of how it would be cool to, if, if Los Angeles passed a law that all the homeless people had to wear the masks of celebrities so people would just think the homeless were movie stars walking around. I, that's not how the joke went. but uh, And uh, to me, that was like absurd and funny. But, you know, it's not being like, hey, man, let's do something about homelessness. It was just kind of a silly way of presenting it. Um, and, you know, you recently, I know you're, 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 you said you're not into doing stand-up right now, but you recently released a new comedy album called uh, Inside Looking Out. And jo Jonah Ray, another well-known comic, uh, encouraged you to take your comedy in a new dire direction. What does that mean for you? Um, I think... Um, 
I think what he wanted, what you know, is like let's not do you know. There's a million stand-up comedy albums out there. Let's see what we can do that would be different. I almost recorded the album and released it as if I was dead, and uh, and I wanted to, and I was gonna. Uh, I was going to record it and like have it almost be a documentary about this dead comedian, sort of like who got discovered after the fact he was dead. Um, and uh, I don't know, I got sidetracked by who the fuck knows what, and I didn't accomplish that. And now that I'm saying it, I'm like, fuck, I wish I would have done that. Um, but I did. It's it, it came out on vinyl. It is available on iTunes and all that. But um, I made the first side live, and then I, the second side is all studio bits, which I was um, overall I'm proud of because I was I. It, it, there's a a bit of a it's sort of a bit of a nod to a lot of the old comedy albums that uh, you know were done in a studio and were sketches and and uh, I always thought that was cool and I always wished someone would do that again so I thought. Hey, I'll do that again. <laughs> and uh, there's two musical pieces on it. One which is a response to a Tom Waits song, and I don't know if people will understand it unless they know the Tom Waits song. Um, but my friend Michael Connell and I, who recorded it together, thought it was really fucking funny. So that's all I cared about. <laughs> How important is is the is process to you? You seem to be someone who enjoys the process without worrying about the results. I love, um, it's funny to me. I know people who hate writing, who write, but they're like, oh, I hate the work of it. And I, I love to write. I love to get some, just blurt something out on the proverbial page. And I love to rework it and build it and in an, uh, in a weird way it's sort of <laughs> while i just realized this but while i'm working it it's a it's sort of an affirmation it's like i'm working my self-esteem too because i'm like it's reminding me i can do this i'm good at this um and i just love picking through these things these thoughts that you throw out there and you know, and the weird way I love when I have a great line, but it doesn't fit and I have to cut it because that I, most people don't, or you're like, it's hard to do, but it's like, it's the best thing in the world because you're in a way you're saying to yourself, uh, there'll be others and there will be, <laughs> it's like, if you trust yourself as a creative person. And uh, I think if you're in tune with your voice, there will always be uh, brilliant moments or at least moments that you find brilliant and that you enjoy. Um, though I have had fear, some, you know, you always have that fear that, oh, fuck, I think I peaked when I wrote that thing. Um, how, how important is it for improvisers? Because, you know, we're, we can be a pretty lazy bunch to write. Um, yes, I, I, and I, 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 I think it is crucial. It is a crucial thing to learn. It used, the one thing that I, 
drove me nuts about Second City is we'd re-improvise premises to hone them down. And I, oh, not all the directors did that, but many. And I always thought, you know, if we just put this on paper and we looked at it, we could figure this out way faster than on our feet. And we could have picked it apart. You know, I, I would have always preferred to do that. And I often came in with sketches written, as many people did. But the truth of the matter is, most of us, even the greatest improvisers, aren't going to become, get on television as an actor. Those chances are slim. You're, the possibility of gaining work as a writer is greater, as well as when you f move to L.A., the first thing people are going to ask you is, what do you want to do, and have you written it, and what, and what do you have? And that is pretty much anybody. Uh, that's why you look at uh, the comedians who have successful film careers and who have longevity, and part of that is they've written their they're, they've written it. They've made it happen. Steve Martin wrote his entire goddamn career. Um, Will Ferrell has written his more successful films are the ones that he wrote or had a huge hand in in creating. Um, and I think that's the case with almost all, look, Louis C.K., like all of them. Um, and, you know, even like guys who were come from improv, like I can't think of his goddamn name, but uh, The Last Man on Earth, you know, that guy, people kind of assumed he was, they're like, oh, his career didn't work out. And then, you know, he was like, no, wrong. I'm going to write this thing. And he created this brilliant show. Well, I think Adam McKay is a perfect example of that. And, D and Tina Fey from people that we kind of came up with. And, and certainly Mike Myers, too. Exactly. Um. You know, I've known you a long time, and uh, you, you've always been a pretty dark person. Uh, <laughs> would, would you agree to that assessment? Uh, yo, yeah. I, I mean, I, even before I think my father died, I had already had a, a you know, it was in my head, the, the darkness. Um, and then you recently have become a father. And uh, how, in, as I watch your posts on Facebook... Uh, you know, you, you could not be more excited and more filled with joy uh, than having this daughter of yours. How has becoming a dad changed you? Um, I definitely feel more love, not just for my wife and my family, who I, I mean, I would, I'll get, I can get choked up talking about it any moment. Um, but with that, uh, you desire community more. The people around you become more important. Uh, I value my friendships. I love my friends more. I love people more. But <laughs> in the same stroke of that, you become cautious more. Uh, you realize how dangerous the world is. Um, I used to think that people who had children would forget about what goes on in the world politically because they were just too distracted by kids. And, but that's not the truth. You become more afraid of the possibilities of things that could happen. Uh, you become 
angrier at the politicians and because they're fucking it up for your child. And I don't want my daughter is a precious, innocent human being right now who is filled with nothing but joy and laughter. And I want to preserve that. And I know the world will taint her, but I would like it to do it as little as possible and to be a healthy, safe place for her. And we have these petty, petty people running things and who posture war and who talk bullshit and, and, and are, I don't give a fuck. Both parties pretty much oppress people, especially the poor. And it sickens me and it fills me with anger. And I don't, I want that world to go away and I want my daughter to just, and all children to enjoy life. And I'm sorry if that sounded really preachy and hippy dippy, but it's the truth. And as a father, you know, you talked about your dad at the beginning of this interview filled with anger. How have you looked back on his anger now that you've become a father? You know, I've, I've, I recently actually wrote a post about this uh, 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 essay and I, I never understood my father. Uh, you know, part of that being he died when I was 12, but I was never able to talk to him as an adult. Um, and I've had, this year has been a, a challenging year. Uh, I haven't had a bevy of work. Um, and it's been a struggle and I realized my father was not angry at his family. He was not angry. Uh, he, was, he was angry because he wanted to provide for his family, and he struggled to do so. Uh, and he wanted so much for us. And I think he just, you know, we saw that up close because he was with us. Um, and I, uh, that was a nice realization. Uh, and I felt like once I realized, because I was getting angry because I kept ending up in these bad employment situations and being and taken advantage of. And I was like, Oh, you're angry like your father was. And you're angry because you're afraid that you're not providing for your, your that you are incapable of providing for your family. And uh, so, yeah, I, that's, I understood my father and with that then came some peace. And I feel like now I know my father. And what is it that you'd like, what is important as you, as you raise your daughter, what is important that you'd like to give her that you didn't get when you were growing up? Um, that's a tough question. Cause I think I want to give, I want not, to, I want to give her as much support as possible. I want her to feel confident and I want her to feel confident and loved and never question or doubt it for a moment that she isn't loved and a good person. Um, we've got to wrap this up and, and it feels no, like no, no, no. <laughs> and I, it's just such an awkward transition because it's, you know, what you said is so heartfelt and being a new father, it's myself. It's you, I, I, I've experienced all the stuff you've talked about. And, you know, there, there was a thing that I experienced and I had a very complicated relationship with my father and he died uh, a, a, a couple months ago. And but when I had my daughter and we had her about three weeks ago, I, I, 
I just wanted to call my dad and say, hey, dad, you know, we, I just had this, you know, I'm part of the club now. I'm a father, too, and, and wanted him to say, you know, he loved me and uh, that he was proud of me. Did anything about your dad come up that you wanted to, to say something to him or, or, or get in touch with the, the loss of your dad when you had your I, daughter? I, not when I had her, no. It didn't. Um, no, it just, in general, it made me want to be closer to my family. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it's a terrible thing, but I don't think I really thought of my father in those coming months. It took, uh, uh, you know, and it wasn't until later that I started associating my fatherhood with the way my father was a father. And, uh, because I, I feel I was like afraid I would take his approach, which was, you know, angry and like, he was just mad at things, you know, he'd be mad at inanimate objects. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, the, the biblical saying, we carry the sins of our father. That's, I used to think that it's like, Oh, if my dad killed somebody, I'm, I'm responsible for that. But it's that it means more of like, you take on their personality traits and you'll pick pick up their bad habits and their, the, their thought process about things. And I didn't want to do that. I don't want to put my weird thought process on my daughter that I somehow somewhat a little bit got from my father. Um, so that I started thinking about that. And then that's when I started understanding my father and sort of figuring out who he was and all that. If that makes sense, I hope that makes sense. Yes. Um, I honestly don't know how to transition out of this. This is, uh, it's very rare for me. Uh, so I'm just going to do it poorly. Uh, we end each episode with asking uh, the same question. What piece of advice would you give someone starting out an improv and comedy today? I would say absorb everything you can, learn the history, and, and learn how to do all of it. Is learn as much as you can. And why is the history important? I feel like if, you know, it's like if you like, if you, it's like with music, you, you, if you like, if you're playing like jazz, you should know all jazz. Uh, so you have a reference to it. Um, and you know what's, you can build on what already exists. And I feel that's what, that's what all creativity is. It's, it's, you know, you don't, no one, we, if you went and if you painted and you didn't know what the history of painters and you started painting like Picasso, you'd be like, Oh, this is great. And then people would be like, Oh yeah, man, that's Picasso. But if you knew Picasso already, you could be inspired by it and find a different approach and, and move it forward. And that's, I believe what all creativity should be. We should always be moving things forward. And we've got to be moving forward too. Uh, there, was, there was a much better segue. I knew I could find it. Matt Dwyer, thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, Matt Dwyer. And I loved what he, how honest he was about uh, his dad and anger and all of that stuff because it's all the stuff that I – still deal with in my life. 
Uh, I'd like to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. And I'd like to thank Sam Bowers, who's the director for our live shows here in Chicago when we do them at the Beat Lounge at the Second City Training Center in Chicago. Uh, also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, workshops, and intensives, The Art of Slow Comedy, and to sign up for my improv nerd blog, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, we're on social media. Go to our Improv Nerd fan page and like us. Follow us on Twitter at improv underscore nerd. And check out our YouTube channel, which is Improv Nerd Podcast, and see clips from our live shows. We're lucky to be part of feralaudio.com. Feralaudio.com is a podcast collective. People like Dan Harmon, Chelsea Peretti, Todd Berry, Jimmy Crane, Matt Dwyer, just to name a few, have some innovative and hilarious podcasts on feralaudio.com. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, The New Frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins one day. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.